Good day, ladies and gentlemen. This is Daniel Cleland, and this is the Daniel Cleland Podcast. Today, we have a very exciting guest on, Mr. Michael Novogratz, a.k.a. Mike Novogratz, the Wall Street legend, Bitcoin investor and spokesperson, and Soltara alumni. Today, we go into a deep range of topics. I really wanted to pick Mike's brain because of his intense broad experience in the world of business and investing and now in cryptocurrency very very interesting guy we de- we dive deep into the lessons uh learned from mike's experiences with various business ventures we talk about normalizing psychedelic therapy we talk about how to get started in bitcoin another couple interesting factoids Mike's an investor in SpaceX and Tesla, so we talk about perhaps going up to space to drink some medicine, but all that and more included in the episode, so please give a listen, check it out, and if you like it, hit the subscribe button, share it up, share it with your friends and family if you think they would benefit from this content, and leave us a review if you don't mind. This episode is brought to you by Soltara Healing Center plant medicine healing retreat in Costa Rica. If you'd like to learn more or feel called to work with plant medicines, please check out Soltara Healing Center at soltara.co or on Instagram at Soltara Healing Center. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the show. Michael Novogratz has an eclectic background. Born in a military family of seven children, Mike attended high school, and competed in wrestling at West Point Military Academy. If I'm wrong about any of this stuff, let me know. Princeton, but that's okay. <laughs> Pardon me? Princeton, but that's okay. You can correct me uh, on the details here, but you did compete in wrestling. You did participate in the National Guard as a helicopter pilot following that. All true. All true. And then you began in the early 90s, a decades-long investment and entrepreneurship career that saw you take on posts in Asia and at the helm of Latin American division of Goldman Sachs, Yep. within which you were a partner at Goldman Sachs, uh, before later becoming the principal executive at Fortress Investments. All correct? All true. Okay. You now run the cryptocurrency and blockchain investment company called Galaxy Digital, which you founded in between, of course, coming to Costa Rica to work with Ayahuasca. You were named a billionaire by Forbes magazine. You are also an outspoken philanthropist focused on criminal justice reform. Very successful, very interesting man with an interesting life journey. So I look forward to speaking with Mike. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Novogratz. Thank you. So how are things? Uh, you're up in uh, the northeast of the United States right now. You know, not bad. The, the, I mean, the weather sucks right now in New York. It's raining. But in general, New York is starting to get a bit of its vibe back. You know, we, we got hit hard early with COVID. And there's a little bit of a second wave here, but it's not as bad. And I was just in L.A. last week, uh, two days ago. The, the tension in L.A., the people are much more nervous, it seems, than they are in New York. In every party I went to, we had to take a test. And I was like, dudes, I've already had it. You know, I've got the antibody, but still wanted a test. Uh, we're a little more laid back about that in New York. Uh, listen, COVID looks like it's coming back. And 
it doesn't unfortunately feel like we're going to get the all clear until April. You know, you get right. a tough winter and then hopefully the the remedies and the and the the vaccines are more readily available. So did you have uh, strong symptoms or was your more of a mild uh, I asymptomatic? I, I remember I had a headache for a couple of days and I wish I'd known that was a symptom. You know, it's not what you hear about often. Um, and it was those couple of days with the headache that I was actually infectious infected a few people. And, you know, and then, and then the real stress of this thing is not in lots of times your own health, but it's like, oh shit, who did I infect? And is it going to get my mom and dad or, and so we had like a cluster of about 10, uh, all luckily were fairly young. I'm not so young, uh, but everyone else <laughs> was fairly young and healthy. And so nine of the 10, uh, almost no issues. One, one older man, you know, the father of one of our guys, he got pretty sick. Uh, he was out of the country. And interesting enough, when they got the steroid, uh, Dexta, Dexta, whatever the Dexta steroid was that Trump took, three days later, he was fine. And so we cleared our, we cleared our many crises, uh, lessons learned. But the real lesson was the stress is not your own health. It's, it's oh, shit, I don't want to be the, uh, the guy that takes down my mom. Right. Yeah, I think that's the general, I think that's the over arching fear across the whole country and, and not only that but it's it's the concern that is communicated from person to person like well you're not just thinking about yourself now you're thinking about the people who you might inadvertently unwittingly uh infect with the virus and they could have an adverse reaction um are you optimistic that that New York's going to come kind of eventually roaring back to to the post covid yeah, days listen, you know Young people make New York, uh, and in some ways, this has given us a great chance to reboot. You know, in lots of neighborhoods, it's gotten too expensive. It pushes the artists and the creatives out, and now, you know, rents are coming down, and my gut feeling is as soon as we get the all clear, young people are going to come come back here quick because it's just an awesome city. There's an awesome underground scene. There's an art scene. There's a club scene. There's a food scene. There's a business scene. And you get that almost nowhere else in the world with this kind of energy. And so I've, right. I'm a huge buyer of calls on New York. I think it's about time to start buying real estate uh, calls, metaphoric calls. Like a, um, I'm a big cheerleader for this place. Uh, just love it. So you think the, there will be an adjustment of any kind on, on real estate prices? Oh, it's happened. It's happened. Rents, it's are, happened. rents are down 40% in lots of ways. Wow. Uh, you know, prices to buy are down a bunch. Listen, the business side, right? These big giant office buildings, that's going to take longer for people to come back because companies have learned they can, they can function remotely or at least partly remotely. And so I would bet that almost every company ends up going to some four day work week, you know, the optional fifth, you can work from home. Um, right. Young people, I was down in the Dominican Republic a few weeks ago. And we imported some people for a party just to have a little more energy. And, you know, they look like a classic Burning Man crew. Uh, and when I was talking to them, they all had interesting jobs. Most had migrated from New York and they went down to a place called Cabarete to kite surf and work. And they work a full eight to 10 hour day and then they play. And they were just, and my own employees that are young adjust really easily to offsite work where the older people, myself included, I'm terrible when I'm at home. I'm like, ah, watch some TV, take a nap, hit the hot tub. Uh, 
And so the whole, I, I came to the office almost the whole quarantine, even though no one else was here, because it puts me in my mindset to actually work. And so right. I think there's something generational there um, where if you've grown up with one of these things and you're so, you know, you're working on your Slack and your all your different apps, uh, yeah, it's easier. I do think integrating new people is difficult, right? The first time you meet someone, you smell them, you, you sense them, you touch them. And then you kind of understand who they are. I mean, the sense of smell is unbelievably powerful. And I can't smell you mm-hmm. across this, this Zoom is, you know, now it would also be a little weird. Like, start <laughs> Biden sniffing you or, you know, like dogs who, <laughs> who smell each other when they meet. But humans do the same thing. And so, right. you know, new people. Or there's even a, an energy that you kind of sense, 100%. right? Like there's kind of an unspoken word that like you're either vibing or you're not vibing. Basically. And so I do think there's going to be a time where people need to come back and companies need to kind of regenerate those connections. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see that phenomenon because, uh, you've been through Soltara, you've, you've seen, you've seen what we do and how we do it. And we've basically never had kind of a central office where we're all like working together. It's like, we're, we, we've constantly ever since the beginning integrated technology and have been doing, uh, cross country. I mean, we have employees from like how many different countries and people and how many different places and WhatsApp is like our core communication yeah. medium and, uh, you know, voice, voice messages and videos and photos and texts and everything else. And, um, yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely buy that theory of some disruption coming to the traditional, like hundreds or thousands of people packed into an office space work environment because it's really not, it's just not as necessary as what it used to be. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of office space in New York, so hopefully it just gets bigger and cheaper, right? Yeah. It gets, and it gets repurposed and like, you know, people are resilient. Uh, New Yorkers certainly are resilient, but people in general are resilient. So almost every time I traded markets around the world and people call the death of, you know, after the Indonesian riots and and financial crisis in 97, people like, ah, it'll never come back. Three years later, three years later, it's a vibrant, growing place. It's always so, the end of the world till it's not, right? Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you about that. How many, because you've, you've, you've been in New York for a while, right? Like 30 years or something or 20 years, right? I moved here first in 1989, but I did spend seven years in, in Asia, Hong Kong and Tokyo. You've, you've been involved in the New York game even while you were in Asia, right? Like you, like, like yeah. with the investing in Wall Street and everything like that. Yeah, 100%. I got, I got, I got New York DNA. <laughs> so how many economic downturns have you actually undergone? And like, and like what kind of perspective? I came out of college right after the stock market crash. And while I was a helicopter partner in the army, all my classmates and friends went through that kind of trauma. And so I feel like I got a little of that. Then we had a 94 bond market crash, so there'd be two, really a crisis in 94 in the, the fixed income markets. 97, Asian crisis, 98, there was the, they called the long-term credit crises. 2000 was the internet crash. 2008 was the global financial crisis. 2012 was the European financial crises. And now we've got COVID. And so probably seven or eight. And uh, you had 9-11 in there too, right? Or did you mention that? Yeah, 9-11 as well. I, yeah. I, you know, I, was, I was between jobs in 9-11, and so it's one of the few times I didn't have my hands on a market. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So actually, the first time we spoke, um, I, I didn't even know 
like who you were. I was just, uh, you know, I, you were at Soltara with, with a, a one or two of your friends and, um, and uh, I was just there, you know, I try to, I try to get to Soltara, um, at least once a week to hang out for a few days, talk to people and have conversations and, and, you know, talk to the staff and everything. I had no idea like that you were Mike Novogratz. I, I, I didn't, I didn't know who you were. And we're sitting down at a table and there was another guy there who's a prison guard. And, um, we were having some conversations about criminal justice reform and prison reform. And I think maybe, uh, Maybe I was. That was the coolest thing I thought about Solterra. As I went down there, wasn't sure who the people were going to be, and I meet this guy who's a prison guard, and I was like, "Dude, prison guard!" I and I, you know, you're in criminal justice reform. You meet a lot of people that were formerly incarcerated. You don't get enough to spend enough time with guys on the other side, the guard side, and so that was one of the highlights. Uh, I forgot his name, but great dude, and his wife had worked at prisons as well at one point. Yeah, she had switched security system yeah i i don't remember the name either i i'm i'm so terrible with names i i meet so many people i really i really appreciated that that little uh you know connection yeah i was like i was uh i was wondering though like after after learning about you um i think we were talking about some more kind of like politically progressive stuff and um and I'm, i'm thinking like oh wait that was mike novogratz and I found myself worrying like, well, we were talking about this politically progressive stuff. And, uh, I wonder if, uh, that's like offensive to, uh, you know, a wall street guy perhaps. Um, yeah. and then turns out you're like, uh, outspoken progressive or left leaning. Yeah. I, I, I used to call myself center left center left. And, uh, and then one of my, well now friends, uh, he actually wasn't a friend before he was a writer. Uh, who did an article and he was like, you know, you're pretty much square in the progressive lane. <laughs> really? You know, I think I'm radical at my kind of core where I think the world should go. I am more measured in how I think we can get there. Um, and so like, I love AOC for pointing out, she does a brilliant job of pointing out what's wrong. Mm-hmm. She speaks truth to power. I think she's the single best retail politician in America today. I think she's got an important voice that'll be around for a long time. I disagree with her on a lot of her solutions Mm. to get us to that promised land. And I think part of that comes from the fact that she's very young. uh, And, you know, having worked in business and understanding how businessmen think and how, you know, the the other side, I was in the military, the military is mostly right. Um, You know, how do you get to the middle to move to the to to justice and it's not easy if it was easy we'd have done it right um but but my my goals my goals in criminal justice are really simple that we go from the shit system that we have now which is punitive uh and full of degradation uh to one of rehabilitation where we deal with people's trauma everybody who commits a crime has suffered a trauma in their lives the crime itself is trauma their victims have also suffered trauma. And so how do we take those people on a journey of healing so they come out and become taxpayers and productive citizens? And I have seen it. I've got an employee that works for me that's been 12 years, you know, uh, and we only spend 12 years if you've done something pretty serious. And he is the most grace, graceful person I know. And, you know, you, I, I tell people now, and this is not to sound crass, but there's a little shock value in it because people 
people have no connection. Wealthy people in general have no connection to criminal justice system. And I said, listen, I've had six or seven people in the last two years at my house for dinner, spent the weekend that had all murdered someone in their life or manslaughter, They'd been part of a, a horrible crime. And every one of those people, I don't let babysit my kids. Uh, they had gone through a transform transformative process of taking ownership of what they did, understanding where it came from and feeling deep regret, you know, making in essence the amends with themselves and the best ch they, chance they could with their, the, the victims or the families of the victims and have moved on and want to be productive people in society. And we have to ask ourselves at a fundamental question, do we believe in second chances or not? Like America loves to believe in second chances, but do we really? Right. And the moment you believe in second chances for people, you have to give, but you don't have to. It helps to actually spend some time with people that have gone through the process uh, of, of healing and say, hey, and so proximity, Brian Stevenson, who's the kind of the godfather of the entire criminal justice space and really is kind of the guy who holds the, the moral compass of our country in some ways. He always talks about proximity. Uh, you don't know until you meet the people. Then you're like, whoa, these guys, hey. And their stories are fascinating. Um, they all start with trauma. And so one of the beautiful things about Solterra, uh, the psychedelic space, it's a different mechanism to help people deal with trauma. You know, there's therapy, there's talk therapy, there's prayer, there's meditation, there's walks in the wilderness. There are lots of modalities that work. Uh, I, I found uh, ayahuasca to be uh, like mainlining, <laughs> mainlining trauma, <laughs> you know, at least that process. Uh, and so, you know, to me, it fits in, you know, criminal justice reform. You know, I'm an investor in psychedelics. Uh, I was lucky enough to be, I think, the first investor in psilocybin uh, and have recently made a whole lot of money in it. Um, I didn't necessarily do it because I thought it would make a whole lot of money, though that helped. You know, it's all about systems change. It's why my business is cryptocurrencies. It's about systems change. And how do we get systems that are broken to shift? And, you know, I think what you're doing down there is, is wonderful. It's a wonderfully safe place to, to, to go through this healing, healing practice or this healing, you know, week. Uh, but it's, it's, it's integrated in my mind with what I hope is a broader movement of criminal justice reform, of kind of building a, a, a world that's, that's more fair, that's more transparent, that's more full of love, that's more connected. And so I try to connect what I do. That's, that's like such an important point. I think it's hard to disagree with the destination, right? It's hard to disagree with like where we want to go. We want to have greater justice. We want to have equal rights. We want to have an equitable society. We want to have less crime. We want to have less incarcerations. We want to have less income inequality. We want to have cleaner environment. We want to have less climate change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I think, uh, yeah, this, uh, the question is how do you get there? How do you do it? You know? And then you made a good point, like, cause you, you mentioned, the perspective of all the really successful business people that you know. And one thing that's pretty much a common thread between successful business people is that they generally know how to solve problems. That's what they do for a living. We solve problems. 
we we solve all kinds of problems nonstop every day. And when you start looking at it like, well, how do you actually effectively solve problems? Um, you know, perhaps some other philosophies come up and other and other possible avenues of of action come up. Um, I think when you're looking at like a societal wide society wide problems, global problems, um, I think in any historical example, when you have uh, when you have a small group of people that are charged with solving massive, huge problems, it becomes problematic in itself. Yes. So, yeah, I, I, I really like the, uh, really like the concept of, of, uh, taking or, or, or helping to facilitate the, uh, the transformation or the, the rehabilitation, the recovery of people who have committed crimes and, and the objective being integrating more people, more productive members in society, more people who are in there problem solving, more people who are uh, helping to transform the macro result uh, with many, many micro transformations. Because, you know, that's really the only way to go about it. It is the only. Listen, a lot of the angst in society, a lot of the angst in business, a lot of the angst in our politics comes from fear. You know, and a lot of that fear comes from unresolved trauma in lots of ways. Um, and so when I got back from Solterra, I had this, you know, opportunity honor uh, to give the commencement address at University of Iowa. I'd never given a commencement address. It's kind of a cool thing to be asked. It's like a big check mark in your journey through life, uh, bucket list item. And Iowa's got like seven uni- seven schools within the university, and I was speaking to the School of Education, uh, the Teachers College, and I thought really long and hard about what I talk about, and, the, and what I talked about is the journey to know thyself. That that most people don't start till they screw up, and I kind of told my own story, um, but I got to the point where should I talk about psilocybin and ayahuasca to this young group of 22-year-old graduates. And I thought really hard knowing that I was a more conservative place than I'm used to, uh, that these are young kids, that I didn't want to be mistaken as promoting rampant drug use. Uh, And when I sat there, I thought, of all the people I know, who that that experience uh, that I had gone through wouldn't benefit? And from business titans to housewives to, to, you know, brothers and sisters and friends. And I couldn't come up with any of them. I was like, everyone might not go through a transformation, but they're going to learn something in the process. Again, when the right set and setting with the right guides. Uh, and so I talked about it. Uh, the head of the school asked me before I gave the speech, he had read it. He was like, are you sure you want to do this? You not do this and i was like he said at least read the read the energy of the audience I'm sorry what did, got, what state did you say this was in utah or something excuse me what state did you say this was in in iowa iowa sorry uh anyways i i included my my story of solterra and the things that i learned there from ayahuasca and psilocybin and really pro- pro- prompted these kids to you know be a generation that tries to destigmatize mental health as opposed to 
you know, oh my God, he's, he's got depression or, oh my God, he's got trauma. Um, and anyways, I thought, you know, credit to you and your, your world down there that, you know, I was, I was comfortable, you know, putting in this public speech, you know, A, that I had done ayahuasca and that I thought it was something that, you know, people should research and try as one of the, the ways they can learn about themselves. And so I do think the world's shifting pretty quick. Yeah, well, uh, there's certainly a massive movement that uh, that we are trying to participate in um, as best we can. Uh, of course, we can only occupy a very small corner of that, right? Uh, we can only handle yeah. 20 people a week, so um, you know we're we're going to do our best to 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 increase our impact. But at the same time, you know, we're just a very small part of a movement that is. But you think about you know your impact's bigger than you think because what I don't know how many. 15 guests a week come through there, you know, 50 weeks a year. So you've got 750 acolytes that go out into the world that tell their friends and, and some of them have platforms, you know, some of them just have their community. Some of them have bigger platforms, but if you look at the ripple effect of people having a good experience and a real experience and a transformational one, you know, it's a lot more than the 750 people that you push through your, your, your camp. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, I, I went on Tim Ferriss's podcast, I don't know, a few months ago and talked about a bunch of things, criminal justice, some great episode, by the way. And it was shocking to me how many people reached out to me, people that I knew, but also people I didn't know. And so you think about, again, the multiplier effect of doing something well, Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things that worries me about the psychedelic space is because it's such a hot space, because there's so much money going into it, that if you miss the story of it, if you miss the setting, if you miss the the Peruvian shaman singing these beautiful liqueurs to you, and, and if it becomes a little too crass, the transmitter of those stories might or might not be winning over hearts and minds, you know? And so I'm, again, I understand how commerce works and it's going to spread, but there's something about keeping the traditions of these medicines uh, alive and vibrant uh, to keep the seriousness around the experience you're going through alive and vibrant, as opposed to like, dude, what a fucking trip. Yeah. Like, oh my uh, God, I became a puma. Uh, <laughs> I have a, I yeah. have a, there, there's my memory to Solterra right there. I, uh, I was going to ask you crawling about around that. the floor, growling and humping pillows like a, <laughs> a jaguar, uh, on day three when I think I overdosed, you know, with my whole attempt at the heroic, at the heroic journey. Uh, and that Puma has been with me ever since. Well, uh, don't feel bad because you wouldn't be the first person who's turned into a big cat in that Maloka. So you know, it's not, uh, it's not uncommon, but, uh, you, you also make a good point with, uh, with the concerns around the commercial, commercial possible benefits to the psychedelic industry right now. But I think, you know, one thing I've noticed over the years is when it comes to ayahuasca, it almost self-checks like, like the people who do it well, who survive in, in the field itself, generally uh, tend to focus on keeping it serious and keeping it 
uh, robust and keeping it traditional. It, I, I haven't seen any examples of cases where it has been uh, handled inappropriately or handled irresponsibly without being extinct, being self-extinguished just by the market itself, because people talk yeah. and nobody comes and nobody wants to contribute to someone who's doing improper work. So, uh, so I mean, especially with ayahuasca, it's not, it's not that, uh, huge of a concern. I don't think from my perspective, but with other types of psychedelics that are like, for example, psilocybin, where there are companies like fortune 500 companies that are developing, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, products that are going to be now more as part of a Western, um, Western prescription medicine, prescription, uh, paradigm kind of thing. Um, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. Like, I think it, it can no, be, I, listen, I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, I was the, the, like I said, the early investor in compass pathways. There you go. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know as much about the psychedelic community at, at that point. You know, I had done some mushrooms when I was in college. The guy made the pitch. It sounded really impressive. Did a little research and said, yeah, this is going to change. And one of the reasons I had become an investor in that and, and other plant-based projects was that I thought the chance of us getting approval through the, SC, uh, the, the FDA is far higher and quicker with private funding. And so I do think psilocybin to work on depression, to work on obesity, to work on trauma uh, is a thing that needs to be spread. 100%. And getting through the FDA, I mean, I have a, a friend right now who's got a daughter who's very depressed. You know, they know me well. They know my story. They know the psilocybin story. But they're using Zoloft instead of, uh, or Wellbutrin right. instead of uh, trying the psilocybin because it's just, it's not legal yet. Right. And their daughter, for God's sakes, or it's their, their nephew or their, or their sister. And so getting the medical community to say, hey, this is actually safe and works uh, is an important step, I think, into really allowing more people to get the benefit. I still worry that the energy, and again, I know I'm talking out both sides of my mouth, uh, and, and maybe ayahuasca, because I don't see ayahuasca. Well, ayahuasca is different than psilocybin, fundamentally, right? Yeah, They're and, different and, and traditions, much, different practices. It, you know, yeah. I don't see them administering that in a hospital. <laughs> well, you couldn't. That's um, the thing, right? Like you, you've yeah. if people have tried to kind of make an ayahuasca pill or whatever, but with ayahuasca, especially when you take away the set and setting, when you take away the the kind of that Peruvian healer singing and the maloca kind of aspect, I mean, that's just such a huge part of it. Whereas, like, I mean, psilocybin. I love psilocybin. I that was you know the first psychedelic I got involved with uh, many years ago. And I mean, with psilocybin, I remember sitting, so much free. sitting there and sitting there in that maloca. And every time, you know, America or one of the shamans would show up and start singing in front of you, you're like, oh, did I just don't take like another dose. You know, the medicine would kind of kind of creep back up and <laughs> here we go again. Yeah. And so there is certainly something about the energy of these, you know, wonderful people that are that's showing up in that room. Yeah, exactly. And and just the environment too, you know, you, you, the sun goes down, you prepare, you kind of get these butterflies in your stomach. You, you, you make the pilgrimage to the Maloka, you find your mat, you do your stretches, you know, the candles are lit. You can smell the, the aroma of mapacho smoke in the air and agua de Florida. And everybody's like, you know, you can kind of feel the tension of everybody just being silent and just getting ready for a spiritual deep dive. 
And, uh, and that in itself kind of starts the journey. It's not necessarily just a psychedelic, but I mean, with like, you know, ketamine or psilocybin or MDMA, these are things that can be taken in a more, let's call it like microdosing therapeutic kind of way, yeah. right? Where it's, you're not necessarily going through a huge, uh, transformational experience with it. It's just tweaking a few of the synapses in your in your brain so that you're you know just a little healthier from a from a mental health perspective so what do you think we talk about a little bit of uh entrepreneurship and crypto and investing yeah i think crypto when i first got involved i got on involved from a financial perspective because i thought someone showed me bitcoin that was going to go higher and i remember walking into this office in brooklyn you know i'm lucky enough that one of my college roommates joe lubin founded this company called uh, consensus. He was one of the founders of Ethereum. Consensus was like the ecosystem company that was going to really build out the Ethereum blockchain. And walked in and was shocked, A, that Joe had more than one employee because he was always kind of my, you know, college dude. And I'm like, oh, there were 25, 20, 30 people and they were busy plotting out this revolution. How are we going to change the system? You know, how are we going to disrupt the music business, disrupt finance, uh, disrupt everything, disrupt money, uh, disrupt art. And I was shocked and inspired by this kind of young revolutionary spirit. Um, when I talk about systems change, it was there in that office. And so I, my second foray into crypto, I bought a bunch of Ethereum and got more involved, was much more purpose-driven. And I think at the core of this whole crypto mission is this purpose-driven mission to make the world in a more transparent, fair, kind of egalitarian and, and efficient way. And I've been selling that story on TV. I'm probably the, the guy that goes on TV more than anybody and talks about Bitcoin and crypto. It's only in the last three months that it's gone from, I hope this happens to it's going to happen. We've crossed the Rubicon. You know, when PayPal just got in, invested uh, or got involved, uh, it's not a question of if it's a question of when. Every other major company. So now you've got Facebook and, you know, they're all figuring their way to the table. Um, what comes out of the sausage making machine will be interesting, right? I don't think we're going to live in a utopian, completely decentralized world where the old guys just say, oh, take our business away. There's going to be some hybrid. Uh, the tech companies are going to start buying the crypto companies. It was really interesting with PayPal. You know, PayPal is a tech company and it's a brilliant tech company with a brilliant CEO. And they hired a, a company called Paxos to do their crypto integration because there's some domain expertise in the crypto world that they haven't had. And the, the braver CEOs, the braver souls are understanding where the world's going to go and they're going to cannibalize their own business to participate in the new ecosystem. Uh, the traditional banks have been very reticent, but they're going to get pulled in. And so it's really the most exciting time for my own company, Galaxy, for the whole space, because it's finally we're like, OK, here comes the big leagues. You know, it's been a sandbox in a lot of ways, an experimental sandbox. And now it's like, OK, you want to change the world? It's your time to start. And so it's like the first inning of that second chapter uh, or that second baseball game. But it's a really exciting place to be. And you're going to see talent pulled into the system, money pulled into the system. And I would bet you 10 years from now, our financial system really looks different than it does today. 
you know, that peer-to-peer, you're going to be buying insurance peer-to-peer and uh, trading and, and your derivative markets. Uh, you're going to trade your baseball cards. You know, your, your crypto wallet, which is on your phone, is really going to own your portfolio. Uh, so you think it's going to be it's going to be more of a familiar trading scenario as like familiar to what we have now where you've got a bank card, you've got bank machines, you got bank accounts. Can you Listen, when you watch TV, do you have any idea what's going on in the back of the TV? No. And <laughs> uh, you care? No. You care that you got good good shows, you can see it, it's a big screen. And so for crypto to succeed, for DeFi to succeed, the normal user isn't going to really notice, but his experience is going to be faster, more transparent, cheaper. So there'll be, there'll be outputs that he says, so this is great, but he's not going to understand how the sausage makes. He's not going to care if he's trading on a decentralized or a centralized exchange. He's going to care that his commission to send, you know, for me to send you money right now down in Costa Rica, I can't Venmo you money. I can't, I got to wire you money through some freaking system. It's the bane of my existence, man. Let me tell you. That's it. I can send you a naked picture of me. <laughs> not that you don't want one. I'm one of 17 apps, right? Think of how many pixels a picture has, right? How complicated pictures. I just go, boop. So why can I send you a picture, but I can't send you money? Makes no sense. When I want to take out money from an ATM, I was just down in Dominican Republic, Right. Cost you like $4. I thought I was taking out $400. I took out 40 Bad foreign exchange uh, for a guy that's in the foreign exchange business. Uh, so that was a 10% fee. And it got me thinking, most people on the bottom third of the pile, they're taking out 20, 30, 40 bucks. They're not taking out 500 or 5,000. Right. Yeah. They're getting hit with that same. So they're getting hit with a 10 to 12% fee every time they take out money. It's ridiculous. That's a crime. It's a crime. That should be free. And it will be free in the next few years, right? Someone moved a billion dollars of Bitcoin from one person to another. A billion dollars worth of cost them $3.54. Jesus. That seems a reasonable price versus, you know, for me to send you $200,000 would be, you know, on wires. and. Well, I mean, just just to give you an example... Uh, for us to, for us to send money from North America to anywhere, like, so our, basically our whole business is kind of online, not online, but we're, we're mobile, right? Like I'm in Costa Rica, you know, our banks are in, uh, in North America and we do business in Costa Rica and everything. So 50 bucks a wire, $50 per bank wire for me to do a wire conveniently from where I am. So like, imagine we're sending out, you know, dozens of wires a month and just like paying out the nose, but what other option do we have? Um, whereas if crypto lives up to the expectations, it could be much easier to be, to be moving money around. That's the exciting part. And what's exciting is, you know, we're here now. Uh, it's been a long wait to kind of get to the point where institutions and companies are embracing it and regulators. But like, like I said, this is the start of the second chapter and it's pretty exciting. So where do you see it going? Like from here, you see incremental uh, growth and improvements, or do you see exponential growth and improvements between? I think it's going to be accelerating. And so, listen, I always tell people the only reason Bitcoin isn't higher in price is because it's hard to buy. Yeah. Right. It's not hard for young people to buy, but it's hard for, you know, most of the wealth of the world is held by 50 to 80 year olds. 
And you take a 60-year-old and say, they barely can use the phone, uh, let alone have a Coinbase wallet or a Square app or a... Uh, and so they pick up their phone and they call their broker or they go on E-Trade if they're a little bit more tech savvy. You can't buy crypto in those places yet. And so partly you're going to see an acceleration of just prices much higher because people can access the space because it's going to be easier. Yeah. The more interesting revolution, though, is going to happen. It's going to take a little. So that's going to happen in the next six to 24 months. The, the more interesting revolution in payments and in, in building what I call decentralized finance, using the blockchain to increase transparency, efficiency and more peer to peer stuff in finance. That's probably two to seven years out. Mm. Um, but it's going to start really it's already showing up. And so for the diehards, they're playing on these systems now, but it won't be at scale for probably, you know, three to five years. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I think, uh, three or four years ago, uh, you, you would remember this as well when, uh, when Bitcoin had its really big, uh, peak, right. It, oh, it yeah. went up to like 20,000 or whatever. And I think I bought in, uh, I bought in around a, a thousand bucks, or something like that. I, I was actually, but I didn't do it myself because it was complicated and I was running the business and I didn't, I didn't have the desire or the time or the wherewithal to go and learn how to deal with the Bitcoin wallets and everything like that. It just seemed complicated. I'm like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm probably going to screw something up. So I paid a guy uh, to, uh, to invest some of my own money into Bitcoin and kind of manage it. He was buying and selling it totally screwed it all up, lost all the money, which was, uh, my last, uh, foray into Bitcoin. I had to fight just to get my original investment back and I haven't gone into it since then. I basically, my excuse is that, well, I should stick with what I'm good at. You know, I know how to, how to be an entrepreneur and, 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 you know, build a company and in Latin America. And that's what I should just do for now and not worry about trying to get into crypto investments. But, um, where do you like, what do you say to to guys like me who have had challenging experiences trading with crypto or who listen to their buddy who says it's going to go up to 50k in 6 months and you know put a bunch of money in and it never happened. So I would tell you that 2017 was a classic speculative bubble. And bubbles happen around things that normally change the world, right? The story is so powerful and so good that everyone says yes. And so we had an internet bubble in 1999. We barely used the internet. You, you couldn't use a, watch a movie on the internet until like 2006 or five. Right? We didn't even have Facebook till five, six, the iPhone 2007. But the bubble was 99. They always happen first. And so we had that bubble in crypto. This time is very different. And, and bubbles go way up and they collapse. And it collapsed because there were a lot of shitty coins being brought out. Everyone's the next Bitcoin. And so yeah. when you have supply responses to a story, all supply. Matter of fact, the market cap of crypto back then was two times what it is today. When I think about what we've built since then in custody, in talent, in real businesses, and uh, we're so far ahead. And so this time it's not a bubble. This time it's a new industry being built to disrupt the world. There are moment, there are companies that get overvalued and they go up and they go down. We had a little DeFi tempest in a teapot bubble three, four weeks ago. But broadly, the march of real money, real innovation, real investors into our space is happening. And so it's a very different. I tell people, unless you want to really dedicate a bunch of your time, buy some Bitcoin, put it away, 
Come back in three years, it'll be a lot higher. If you want to be a little riskier, buy some Ethereum. It's a venture bet. Mm. Put it away. Uh, and or give a give put some money in a venture capital fund that focuses on the space. There are five or six great ones. Uh, but to try to think from Costa Rica for 15 minutes a day, you're going to figure out, should you buy sushi swap or this, your friend told you that the wifey coin is YFI coin is a better coin than you've got zero chance of, of, of winning in that, in that game. So you dedicate a lot of your time to it uh, and really learn it. Or you do what's rational is, Put 5% of your net worth in Bitcoin. You might be shocked that in, you know, four years, that's up five to 10 X. So you think it's better bet than gold right now or than, than dollars? I do. I do. I, I have gold as well. I think gold's a good investment because central banks are debasing their currency, but we've known about gold for 3000 years. And so if you want to buy it, you bought it. It's safer. Right. Um, less risk than crypto, but crypto, you get the same story as for Bitcoin. I should say specifically, you get the same story as gold, but you also get this adoption curve. You get all these new players who are learning about it and participating. You get all this new plumbing, right? Pretty soon Facebook is going to open up their Novi wallet and there's 25, two and a half billion customers that use one of their messaging apps, WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or Instagram Messenger are going to be able to participate in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So it's a whole lot of customers all of a sudden. Um, and so I just think you're so early on the adoption curve that Bitcoin's a much better bet than gold. So for now, the best the best win with Bitcoin is, is basically just storing wealth. Um, and it's the only use case for Bitcoin for now. Right. But then in, in the future, you and I think for a long time for Bitcoin, there are other cryptos, right? You're going to be having your customers pay you in some version of a dollar coin. It might be USDC. Uh, it might be Facebook's dollar coin called Libra. Uh, but if you're a dollar based guy, you're going to still run your business in dollars unless the central bank of america really fucks it up and if we have the dollar becoming the venezuelan bolivar uh well then you're going to be shifting to something safer maybe bitcoin maybe a euro coin maybe something else uh so people are buying bitcoin a little bit as a hedge that wow the central banks look like they're playing with fire and things could get ugly but no one's lost faith in the dollar yet no one's lost faith in the, the euro or the yen Right. These are economic systems that still work and they work really efficiently. And so, so you have, is, you're optimistic about the stability generally. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm less confident today than I was six months ago and even less confident than six months before that. But again, the probability of us having a runaway dollar is, is not 70%. Maybe it's gone from five to 10. And so I'm not telling people to put all your money in Bitcoin, put 5%. If you're wildly aggressive, put 10%. Uh, you know, if you're young and you have a higher risk tolerance, um, read the newspaper, monitor things. If things start getting really bad, you're going to see more money shift into places to save it. Do you, uh, do you think that the upcoming election will have any bearing on, on the U S currency or do you want to just totally stay away from, from it? No, I, I listen, I'm, wildly political uh 
full disclosure, I have been working and my team has well, been I working. I see your uh, Joe Biden uh, water bottle there behind you. Yeah, I got a Joe <laughs> Biden water bottle. Uh, I think Donald Trump has been a disaster for the spirit of our country. Forget the policies. I don't think he, in my mind, you don't get to talk about policy when you have someone who's, you know, got a black heart sitting in the, the White House, someone who's demeaning to people, who's degradating all the time, who lies, 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 who cheats, cheats, and cheats. You, know, you get me going, I literally am going to like blow my head off. I can get, and so I have worked really hard uh, with our team downstairs at Galaxy Gives uh, to raise money for swing state, you know, uh, voter registration and anti-voter suppression. And, and, and Well, I got your email you know, the one night uh, after the first debate. We are very vested in, uh, in this election. Uh, I was laughing. So, so what are you going to do if Trump wins? And I was like, oh, I think I might try heroin for the first time. <laughs> just, just end the pain. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to try heroin for the first time. Maybe I'll. I knew you were joking. It's okay. Um, but listen, I think it'll be an unbelievable hole in, 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 in my stomach and many Americans. Uh, you know, and it's funny. People on the other side, they don't, they don't feel it the same way. It's been one of the things that I've had hardest in my life to understand how we can experience things, experience things so differently uh, or prioritize things so differently. Um, I'm smart enough to know that everyone who votes Republican aren't terrible people, uh, but it's hard emotionally to understand where their priority system comes from. Um, I get it. I talk to them. It's policy over character. It's poli- It's taxes over like what I think is the, the more important things in our country. And they're like, well, that's okay. You're already rich. I was like, oh, I'm not going to answer that. I'm just going to breathe deeply. Um, it's so interesting. Um, it's so interesting. I, I saw a, uh, a program the other day that showed where the money was coming from for both campaigns, like the zip codes, right? And, and a lot of the richest zip codes in, in the United States are actually voting blue this year, which I, I thought was interesting. Yeah, you know, listen, the, it's funny. The Republican Party is traditionally not a party of all the rich guys. Uh, it's a party of all the pretty rich guys, the aspirational rich, the people that are working their ass off to make $300,000 a year and say, Hey, at $300,000 a year, I'm supposed to be rich and I don't feel as rich as I should be. And why am I paying for all these guys that don't work as hard as me? Like they feel like something's being taken from them or the 100,000 or the 80,000 person who's barely getting by and looking at someone below them getting what they think are handouts. Uh, You know, when you break out of that wealth into the next realm, nothing really changes in your life too much. You know, Someone was saying, oh my God, it'd be so horrible. And I think it will feel horrible, but my actual life in terms of ability to travel and buy and do and see and learn doesn't change, you know, once you have big wealth. Right. And I think part of that is where you see, you know, they used to call them the limousine liberals. Uh, I think that's a bit of a disparaging term, um, but it is, you're feeling less of a threat. Uh, now, some people, it's just taxes at all costs. I, it's crazy. I got friends that are worth five, six, seven, twelve, fifteen billion dollars that will literally move from a vibrant city like New York down to a crappy place like Palm Beach uh, just to save on the state tax. I'm like, dude, you got ten million dollars. Like, you, they're not taxing your wealth, so you're going to make a bunch of income and you're going to pay a little more tax. It's not going to impact, and you're going to change your whole lifestyle. 
It makes no freaking sense to me, mm. but I don't want to pay tax. And I'm like, mm. I think if you think of money as energy, you're just better off. Like push them back, give some back. You know, it, it's frustrating to give money to the government because governments don't spend it well, right. but we need governments. Yeah. We need governments to police our neighborhoods. We need governments to feed people, to educate people for the military. And so you, you got to pay some tax. Do you have any, uh, any predictions on the election? By the time this gets this gets published, which will probably be late November, uh, the election. I think it's going to be a blue sweep. I really think America is going to vote decency over policy, over tax, um, and I think people are nervous because of what happened in sixteen, and so no Democrat will sleep well until the votes are tallied, uh, including me. Uh, I had a terrible dream last night that that Biden won by fourteen million votes, which would have been the third highest vote differential ever. And we had a tie in the electoral college. I was like, no, I woke up. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Democrats are going to sleep well until it's declared a victory. Uh, I pray Florida votes for Biden because then it'll be over. Mm. You know, that Florida is one of the states that counts all their, their early votes before the day of. And so that night, you know, Pennsylvania, we might not know for five or six days. Uh, And so, but we do know if Biden wins Florida, it's all over. There's no path for Trump without Florida. Uh, and listen, on the polls, they're all close. Biden's up a few. We'll see. I just think Trump hasn't won over anybody in the last four years, but he's lost people. Right. And while Biden is not the rock star candidate that everybody would have wanted, he's a very decent man. Uh, for some reason, people really didn't like Hillary. And so I'm like, you got a better candidate on the Democratic side. You got Trump having shown his true colors over four years, uh, a charged up electorate. And so I think you're going to see a big blue wave and humiliation for uh, Trump and the whole, you know, Republican apparatus that has, you know, followed his shitty leadership for the last four years. Do you think that is going to, what, what effect do you think that's going to have on the, uh, the polarization uh, in America. Are you concerned about the polarization? Do you think this election is? Very concerned. Listen, I think Biden will not want his legacy to be, oh, I push for universal health care or I push for, it's not going to be a policy legacy. His legacy will be, I try to heal the country. Mm. And so you got a guy who is 78 years old, who is probably, quite frankly, we shouldn't let anybody over 70 run for office. Uh, but he's a very decent guy. Everything about him has been trying to be a good guy his whole life. And so my bet is he will push to be the healer. On day one, his speech will be handing out the the olive branch. I don't know if he pulls it off, but he will work really hard to make that his legacy, more so than the policy stuff. And I think that's a a good idea for him. And I think it's a role to play. Um, Biden's not, he's not nearly as progressive as I am. Uh, he's not AOC. He's not Bernie Sanders. He's not Elizabeth Warren. He's an institutionalist and a centrist. Um, and so he'll be pulled to the left some, but it's not his core DNA. Uh, and so that's my gut. And I hope, I really hope it's true because I think the country needs some healing. Well, we're only a week away, so, or less, right? So we'll see. Um, Play the podcast right before the election. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you have a wide array of experience in challenging career positions, ranging from your wrestling career to your piloting career to the Army 
uh, or, or the National Guard, decades on Wall Street. You know all kinds of very successful people. You've worked with all kinds of very successful people. What are some of the common threads that you believe make or break people when it comes to succeeding and winning in, uh, in business and uh, life? Um, I think there's like four things that we you throw in the bucket. Well, like number one is grit. Like nothing's easy. People say, oh yeah, it's, it's an easy run. No one has an easy run. Um, and so grit is important. Uh, I invested in this company, Whoop, and I, it just announced a big fundraise. It's now a billion dollar company. Whoop, uh, the, the band oh, that geez, measures. Yeah, I need to get one of those. I want to get one of those. I, I met the guy on, he, he was a friend of my neighbors and I was like one of his first investors. And I didn't realize that was like six years ago. He's been gritting it out and it didn't go straight up six years to get to where he is. It's a lot of grit. And so it's business. You gotta be, you gotta care and be, you know, have grit. I think you gotta be a little bit lucky. You know, there's a little bit of right place at the right time for all of us. And so, and I say luck a lot because when you try something and you fail, you know, it doesn't mean you, you're terrible. It doesn't mean you suck. It means you, your idea wasn't great or it was at the wrong time. And so a lot of life is timing. Um, I think the confident, the, the great CEOs learn how to tell their story and learn how to get people to follow that story. And so narrative is important why you're doing it, how you're doing it, to pull people along with you, to pull shareholders along with you, to pull employees along with you, uh, to pull the community along with you. Um, and so really thinking about what's the story I'm trying to create. Like I, I sometimes think I should do a, a, a consulting business to sit with entrepreneurs and help them like learn to tell their story because I just love telling stories. Like your, your, your company is such an easy one, right? I mean, you know, we're a healing center and it's a perfect place to do this. And you're, and so, but a lot of unsuccessful leaders don't know how to tell their story. So they don't, they don't get, they don't get seen. And so, you know, what I say, grit, storytelling, luck. Um, and then it's domain expertise. Know what the hell you're talking about. Subject matter right? expert. Right? And learn, learn your space, have something to add to that in your space. And so, you know, I love being around people where I learn new domain expertise. Uh, and so that's, I think, also important. If you're going to build a meditation app, you better know a lot about meditation. So I, I'm actually working on a new book uh, called 12 Laws of the Jungle, uh, working on a subtitle, but something along the lines of a master's degree in entrepreneurship. And uh, so I, I wanted to ask these questions of you uh, to kind of test some of my own theories. Um, but you mentioned the, the, the storytelling, this, I call that sales. And, um, and I, I feel like that is, has played an incredible, uh, amount of importance in my own personal journey in entrepreneurship. Um, so obviously the ability to sell and influence people more than anything that has played, uh, that has played, a a significant role in your life? Have you actually ever had just a straight up sales job? I haven't had a job where I told stories. Well, yeah, you know, I was a salesman at Goldman Sachs first, selling money markets, uh, and then talking to clients about markets, trying to get them to transact with us. 
Um, and so, you know, I wasn't selling used cars, but I was building trust with customers and building a connection with customers that we understood as a firm and that I understood the markets. Uh, it's a lot of what I do here at Galaxy Digital. I'm getting people to, you know, trying to help people to understand what cryptocurrencies are, getting them to trust me and us as a company uh, that we know what we're talking about. And so I think in almost every business you're in, sales is a key part. You know, how do you connect to people? Um, you've got to be authentic. Uh, you've got to be somewhat charismatic, but the, you know, charisma comes in all kinds of forms. Uh, there's not one style of storytelling, not one style of sales. Uh, a lot of it comes from confidence. So again, do you know who you are? Can you, can you be okay with making mistakes? Can you be okay with saying, dude, I'm so sorry. I called up. I thought you were supposed to buy and man, my timing was wrong. Um, and so I think the more you get comfortable with yourself, the better salesman you are. That also comes. But it's in every it's in every business. Yeah. And uh, have you have you found the same thing when it comes to actually attracting top quality talent to your companies and working with people? Yeah. Listen, working, you know, the 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 great you kind of privilege of being a boss or being able to hire people is you get to see all these different experiments on, you know, what works, what doesn't. And so much of it is to can you get that person into a place that they trust themselves, that they have confidence, that they're not scared of you, that they're not scared of the customer, uh, that they're operating from a position of good energy. And it's not easy, right? People come with their own baggage. Everybody wants to do well in life. So you're a young kid and you're like, shit, if I don't do well, I might lose my job. If I lose my job, I can't live in New York. Uh, there's all these pressures, these, these other stories they build up in their mind. And so how can you create an environment where you give your people the best chance to succeed? And that's not, you know, that's not easy in some, listen, every once in a while you get, your industry gets a tailwind and everything feels easy, but in general, you know, building a successful business, winning in markets, winning in a sales job, you know, is hard. Have you ever on the subject of grit, have you ever like had any salient experiences or challenges or periods of personal difficulty that you kind of went through in your formative years that helped you prepare for the kind of the ongoing long-term slog of the world of business where oh, things oh. just don't work. I mean, I've, I've had plenty. My, my brothers and sisters would have, you know, called me the comeback kid. Uh, I used to say my theme song is from Chumbawamba. I get knocked down, but I get up again. And, and some of that came from wrestling. Like no one wins every wrestling match. You get the shit beat out of you. And you're like, Oh, and you come back and you have to learn to get it back up and, and go back in the ring. And so wrestling was an amazing exercise in developing grit. Um, but yeah, listen, I was a high flying, you know, rock star at Goldman Sachs. And then I kind of had a personal screw up and lost my, you know, left my job and was embarrassed and humiliated. And, you know, how do you come back in life uh, and start another chapter? And that took a lot of deep soul searching. Uh, one of the things I, I talked about this before is I finally went on a journey in nature. I ran seven, seven marathons across the Sahara in this thing called the Marathon of the Sands, the Marathon de Saab. And it was that physicality of being alive. I'm like, I'm alive. Uh, that 
got me to get out of my own, you know, what was me soup and say, dude, what, what are you fucking complaining about? Like, this is a beautiful world. You're vigorous. You've got all this opportunity in the world. Go do something. Um, and so once you come back from an ass kicking, the next time you take one, you know, you can come back. And so grit gets easier in some ways, you know, like, listen, at the fourth time you fall down and get your butt kicked, you're like, okay, I got to learn to stop doing this. Yeah. You know? um, and some of it's just, you know, I'm an optimist by nature. I'm a glass, glass is half full guy. Uh, and so like the puppy dog, I'm like, okay, ready to go again, ready to go again. Uh, and so part of it's, I think, you know, some people are more, more likely to be optimists. Um, but it, it's a trained muscle. Sure. You know, I think wrestling was the best training for it. So I guess, I guess my ultimate point is, is that difficult experiences are good for leaders as for people who want 100%. to become leaders. Like you hit rock bottom and I'm not going to give you sympathy. I'm going to say, great, good. Learn from it, get better, climb up. And now you're going to be proud of yourself. And now you're going to now you're going to go and crush it in the world because you had this, you had this chip on your shoulder. Now you have this edge, you know, you've been to the depths of, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And it's like, boom, let's rock and roll now. You know, that's actually chapter one in my book. Well, often people don't learn about themselves. They don't even start the journey to learn about themselves until they hit some form of a bottom. Right. Yeah. I, I never did one meditation class one. I never had a therapist any of the kind of modalities to learn about yourself, I never started until I was flat ass on my, on my butt saying, Oh, please, someone help me. <laughs> you know. Uh, and so I'd like part of my speech at Iowa was to try to encourage kids to start that process before they screw up, before they get divorced, before they lose their job, before they end up in jail. Um, but most people don't, most people wait until that first butt whooping. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it does happen and, uh, it's not, it's not uncommon for beautiful things to happen after that. So, uh, so yeah. Um, how important has, uh, imagination and visualization, uh, been in your, in your journey as an investor and entrepreneur? Have you, did you, was, was your, uh, was your journey, was your path to success very much visualized by you beforehand or was it kind of just played it live and, and, uh, and did it on the fly and just, you know, whatever. You know, it's interesting. I know is probably the answer though. It might've been fantasized. Like I, I, I don't fantasy, fantasy, fantasy and visualization are something that's close. I had this narrative that I needed to be successful. Now that, both work to my benefit and work to my detriment, right? When you're a young kid, a five-year-old that thinks you need to be successful, somehow you pick that message up from your mother or father. Um, that's not necessarily a true story. They didn't say you need to be successful to be loved. They just loved you, but you picked a different message up. And so I can remember so many times thinking, oh, if I did this and this, I could make this, and I'll do this with the money. And, you know, it was like this hero journey that I wanted to do. So you had ambition. Uh, Yes, but that ambition didn't necessarily come from the healthiest place, right? It came from this huge desire to be successful because somehow I learned at a young age that I was supposed to be, <laughs> you know? My mother used to tell everybody, 
my son's going to be a senator one day. Like we grew up in a middle-class neighborhood on, you know, small little houses with, you know, picket fences and dogs. Uh, but I was going to be a senator one day. Uh, and somehow I picked up that story that I needed to be a success. Again, that certainly helped drive me to be a success. My mother, when I gave her shit the first time, I was like, you put so much pressure on me. She's what I do. <laughs> and then she said, you know, I should have put more pressure on you. Maybe you'd have been the president. <laughs> <laughs> well, but like that, the, the flip side of that is that's probably where, you know, the medicating of some sense of I'm not good enough or, you know, like never good enough. That, that when I was at Solterra, I remember this Australian lady was like, just be gentle on yourself. And I never understood what being gentle meant until my fourth day of my ayahuasca trip. Uh, after I had thrown up and the shaman was in front of me, I realized that the medicine was gentle, that it met you where you were at. And gentleness really was meeting you where you're at. My wife is a gentle lady. She meets you where you're at. And I, I hadn't. So I was like, shit, no wonder. I think I'm a nice boss, but people say I'm a tough boss. I'm like, how can I be tough? I'm like the easiest going guy around. They're like, you know, you never give a compliment. It's like, hey, good job, but hey, that was a B plus job. Uh, and I was like, that's kind of how I felt. Well, that's how I've always judged myself. Sure, yeah, high standards. Uh, and that fourth day of ayahuasca, I was like, ah, oh, that's not gentle. Gentle is you're okay because you're here. You should be you should be proud of yourself because you actually flew down to this place and you're you're here. Even if you're not where that girl next to you is. That girl was going through like the seventh dungeon of hell. I mean, she was really dealing with some stuff. As it goes. I was thinking, shit, what a pussy I am that, you know, I'm not where she is. And I was like, I'm not gentle as be proud that you did this. And that was, but stupid enough, that was the insight I took out. Like, not stupid. That was the beautiful insight I took out of Solterra. I was thinking there was going to be some magical secret. And I was like, wait a minute, something that simple. And I tell you what, after I had that realization, the last couple hours of the last experience, I was like, can we just rave now? I was like, this is just bliss. And, and so, you know, that's full circle from you got to be a senator uh, to be loved, to learn something about, hey, you're okay where you are. So there's a sweet spot though, right? Between self-acceptance and complacency. I have never had the complacency problem, but 100%. Uh, I wish I had a little more complacency gene, <laughs> but there's, you know, listen, and I think a lot of the best business minds and other business leaders, they're a little fucked up. Yeah. You know, I don't think they found the balance. Like they're never good enough. Like they're, they're never they're, good enough for their own personal standards. Right. Yeah. And, and listen, that maybe benefits society because we get some amazing companies or amazing businesses, or amazing. And uh, I'm not sure they're, they're as whole or happy as they need be, uh, or they could be. And so there is this funny balance about, you know, getting to this place of balance and peace versus the, the maniacal drive that comes from being unbalanced that often creates, you know, big fortunes or I would far rather the world all get to the place, right? The guy with 10 billion or 30 billion or 40 billion might realize, okay, enough, I got enough. Let me, let me see if I can turn my resources to see if I can help out instead of collecting chips. Uh, sure. I'm shocked at how few people of privilege go on that journey we were talking about. Well, what do you make of a guy like Elon Musk who has, who has, you know, he's all it, in my opinion, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure I've read it in content that he's approved is that he, he has kind of 
what might be considered an unhealthy amount of self-talk going on about things that he needs to get done and and just these 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 like he's a perfect candidate to talk about in that like listen he has built i'm a spacex shareholder are you uh i was gonna ask you about that oh yeah i, I mean i think spacex is gonna be a another one of his trillion dollar businesses one day you know like he built some of the best businesses he has an unbelievable confidence that comes from thinking of things in a different way and making it simple and then and then saying this can get done. Um, I don't know him well enough to understand if he's happy or not happy or balanced, like, you know, but you look at the maniacal way he works and some of the, the, the bouts of complete narcissism that we've seen, you know, F you to the SEC and smoking, but like that, that you probably don't get one without the other to some degree. Uh, and so I think Elon's doing a lot of good for the, for the world. Uh, I, you know, hope, like I hope for everybody that he kind of finds kind of peace, love, and joy in his heart and the energy he shoves out in the world is all positive. Uh, listen, the Tesla is a spectacular, I got two of them. I love the Tesla. I think it's a huge contribution to society. I just I put a deposit down on a cyber truck. So, and so he's an, you know, he's the most interesting character to ask that question about because yeah. he's probably our greatest entrepreneur. And we all know a little bit of him from his podcast or TV or, but we really don't know him. But what we see about him is, wow, there's some of them that's like out of whack versus the rest of us. Yeah. So if you're a shareholder of SpaceX, you must be on board with the whole kind of Mars initiative and, and well, or, or rather let's make, let's make humanity interplanetary. You know, listen, I, the, from a investor's perspective, it's Starlink and the, transportation of satellites into space mm. that will drive the money sure. and it's going to Mars. that scares the shit out of you that, Oh my God, he's going <laughs> to blow all our money on this, you know, vanity project Wild going to Mars. Yeah. Um, but at one point you got to trust, you know, trust the quarterback, you know, he's done well with as a steward of your capital and as a storyteller. Uh, the Mars stuff is interesting because I do think it's important that we all dream big. Uh, there's this balance between Jesus. We've got half, you know, half the population of the United States, let alone the world, that doesn't live with liberty to some degree, with like the ability to breathe. Uh, they live under stress because of financial, because we don't distribute food or education uh, or other services well. Right? It's crazy that we still have 20 percent of the kids in New York City to go to bed hungry every night, richest city in the world, and so. You do think ah, before we get to Mars, let's help out a little here. But I do also love the, the the wild dreams that inspire kids and inspire scientists and inspire big ideas. Um, so I, I guess if I was the coach of Bezos or, or or Musk, I'd be like, yeah, spend some on Mars, but a little little of your great unique energy because those guys both have a unique brain and a unique energy. Spend on helping us solve some of the problems here. Sure. Well, congrats on uh, on the Starlink beta testing. I just saw that go live. If 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 you're part of uh, SpaceX, I just uh, saw a video today actually where uh, where Starlink was going on on their beta testing journey. Saw the pricing looks fantastic. Saw the uh, the bandwidth looks fantastic, and the latency just even for beta testing. And I mean, I can tell you, man, like. 
internet has been, aside from wire transfers, international wire transfers, internet has been the bane of my existence since I ran a uh, healing center in the Peruvian Amazon uh, since I built that in 2014. You just can't get internet in these places. It's like if you're dealing with microwave towers and, you know, in Costa Rica, you've got storms and you've got uh, everything else. It's just really frustrating. So I, I was very, I actually shared it with my whole team today that Starlink's going beta. And we're, as soon as we can get access to it, we're definitely going to go with Starlink. Awesome. Yeah. So, awesome. um, yeah, lastly, Last question, Mr. Novogratz. Assuming the space race continues as it as it is doing, assuming a space tourism industry emerges, we're looking at space stations, space hotels, and SpaceX sending people up to go on space vacations. It's my goal to actually host a Shipibo ayahuasca ceremony in space. Would you join me? I'm in. You're in? I'm in. You're in? I'm in. <laughs> Good. All right, man. I'll put you I'll put you on the short list then. Well, awesome. I really this has been fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um anything uh any last words you want to say to the crowd? Um how are people helping you out with your philanthropy? How are people getting in touch? What what do you what do you want to point people to? You know, we have a website called Galaxy Gives. Um, it explains a little bit what we do and, and, and our, our team does and anyone feel free to reach out there. We're working on democracy issues and criminal justice issues mainly. Um, we've had a pretty unique idea that like we have a thing called one for democracy, which we've raised all this money in democracy. It's not us. We we've partnered with five or six other people in the field to help figure out where the money is best spent. We've kind of been the engine behind it, helping on the fundraising side, but it's, it's, in some ways, helping birth ideas that the community then owns. It's a lot like the crypto spirit. Uh, we have a thing called Defeat by Tweet. If you really don't like Donald Trump, you can sign up. You can pledge a penny, a dime, a dollar. Every time he tweets, your penny, dime, or dollar goes to <laughs> black, black-led black uh, political organizations in the South. I'm mean, sorry, in the swing states. And so we have this philosophy that, you know, close George Floyd, that the African-American community doesn't have enough political infrastructure. And so let's use Donald Trump's bitterness and hate to actually, every time he tweets, he's funding these black organizations. It's ingenious. There you go. <laughs> and so people that, that work on that, uh, again, we don't pick where the money goes. We have this group of experts that we're part of. Uh, and so you don't see your galaxy brand all over these things. They're, we're, we're kind of like a think lab that we try to, create these ideas and put them in the water and let them grow by themselves. And so I, we love all the help we can get. Cool. So defeat by tweet and galaxy gives. Well, Mike Novogratz, I know your time is very valuable. So thank you very much. I really appreciate you participating in our, uh, in our launch here. It's really means a lot. Appreciate you and hope the, uh, the team at Solterra is healthy and happy and I'm sure they're, they're having fun. Thank you very much, sir. Have a great afternoon. Thanks a lot. Cheers. The Daniel Cleland Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Daniel Cleland Podcast. We truly enjoy you sharing your time with us. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed sharing it with you, 
please like the episode, review the podcast, subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, these likes and reviews and subscriptions are the lifeblood of our show. So free for you, super important for us. Like, subscribe, and review. Thank you so much. Of course, this podcast would not be possible without the continued amazing sponsorship of Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to work with plant medicines, ayahuasca, shamanismo, curanderismo from Peru, from the Peruvian Amazons to Costa Rica, check out Soltara Healing Center at soltara.co or conveniently 1-800-397-1730 or look us up on social media at Soltara Healing Center. All kinds of great content, nonstop, coming out, down the pike, every day, just for you. Thanks again so much for joining I appreciate it beyond words, and I look forward to doing many more of these episodes for you and connecting. If you want to reach out to me, there's a contact form on my website, danielcleland.com. Feel free to hit me up. I read every email and try to respond to all of them. Thanks again. Much love to you, and I hope we get to catch up soon. All the best.